Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasala. Loving oneself. It's a bit of a mysterious process, at least for me. There are so many ways in which we and I have been conditioned to think that loving myself is a selfish act. What about all the other needy people? What about the obligations to society, to family, to friends, and to strangers? My proverbial neighbors are all suffering in some way. What about them? What about duty? What about productivity? What about contributing something to society? Each and every one of these categories begs the question, them or me? Where do I put my energies? Why would I be so selfish as to apply them to my own self when there are so many others in need and so many ways in which my energies could be put to use helping them? Well, My perspective on this has been informed by three vantage points, three experiences that have led me at various times down the path of self-love. The first was when I was first training in shamanism. When we journeyed to the upper world, we were instructed to look for someone, any spirit being whom we came across, and ask them, are you my teacher? We were advised that we might meet one or, or many spirits who would respond in the negative. Now, in the basic journeying workshop with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, we're taught that the upper world is full of compassionate beings, and only compassionate beings. And yet, we were cautioned that not everyone you meet there will help you. Why is that, I wondered. The answer, like many in shamanism training, wasn't very satisfying in the conventional sense, at least at the time. Because, the answer was, it's not their job. They have other business. But you can ask them for directions, 
and they might point you in the right direction if they knew it. What was hinted at in that moment was a reality in which not everybody was omnipotent, that even compassionate spirits had limitations and other obligations. To me, in my neophyte understanding of power and compassion, it was confusing. The second vantage point was when I heard the phrase, the greatest gift you can give to the world is the gift of your own enlightenment. It came to me through a colleague in my shamanic training. It's been attributed to the Buddha or Lao Tzu, probably many others. This was years ago. I was still very, very ego-driven then. I was still insistent that I had to do something about what was wrong with the world. But at the same time, in a confounding and paradoxical way, I began to realize just how powerful a being I was. How powerful every human is. The ramifications of my actions emanate out from me in impossibly complex ways. My very energy and mood radiates out from me and influences those in my immediate vicinity. And they influence others. And so on. And so on. I came to envision the dramatic and potentially drastic consequences of any misapplied energies of mine. What were the consequences? The consequences of what I've come to call my unconscious agency. I have choice. I have free will. I choose to act. My many actions are selected and engaged from a place within my own perspective and awareness. However, my self-perspective and self-awareness are limited, so I end up with some effects of my actions that are intended and some effects of my actions that are unintended because some, potentially large, parts of my free will, my actions and my agency, are unconscious. So here I am trying to fix the world when the lens I have at my disposal for measuring what's broken is unknowably flawed. And all my energies, intentions, and actions have consequential impact on the world around me. So what am I doing, presuming that I know what's best for someone else or for a grand array of someone else's? It was in that moment when I fully came to realize the truth of the simple statement, change yourself and you change the world. Because from the moment you change yourself, every ripple effect of your energy is changed. Every element of your conscious and unconscious agency is changed. So, of course, the greatest gift you can give to the world is the gift of your own enlightenment. Because from that moment on, your every action accrues higher and better consequences. This, I think, is what the compassionate spirits we talk of in shamanism know, that other spirits and beings and entities may not. This realization, of course, carries with it some potentially paralyzing fears. Can I do anything without creating more problems than I solve? Should I just stay home, hide under a rock, do nothing to address perceived injustices, the suffering of others, the ills of the world? But there's nothing in the statement that suggests you can't take action. It's only that what actions you take should either be focused on your own enlightenment, or at least 
at the very least, contribute in some way to your own enlightenment. And how you go about selecting appropriately? It's left unspecified in the quote. (laughs) But it doesn't mean there isn't a way to know or a way to proceed. Which brings me to the third gift I received regarding loving oneself. Some years later, I was doing deep journey work and was wrestling with my sense of aloneness, smallness, and impotence in the face of the overwhelming needs that surrounded me. My sense of not knowing what to do, my sense of inadequacy to even understanding the task, much less accomplishing it. I was taken on a journey across an ordinary landscape. Trees, flowers, squirrels, deer. Everything under the sun was present, and present to me. Each being I passed by was humble, open, and responsive to invitations to intimacy. There were no shrinking violets, rather quite the opposite. Everything, every being, was available for engagement, but in a very particular way. We were strangers upon meeting. I'd never seen these beings before, but each and every one was willing to engage as they could from their own strengths. It was clear that they were friendly and available and that they were absolutely willing to share their gifts with me. Their gifts. Their talents. It was so interesting. They were open and loving and freely willing to share, but they could only share what they had. What they had was so beautiful, so particularly pine tree or daisy or cloud, but also so particularly not something else. What they had, they had. What they didn't, they didn't. And they had no shame about it. This perspective may seem obvious to you, but to me it was at first odd, and then gradually quite beautiful. They were all unique. None had any delusion or need to be greater than they were. But each was quite joyfully fulfilled by being unreservedly its mostest self. And all that openness, combined with all that selfness, created an environment of safety. Safety in asking, and safety in declining, and safety in being declined. Whatever I needed was okay. It was what I needed. And they were all fine with that and open to hearing my request. And whatever they had to offer was okay. It was what they had. And they were willing to share it generously. And if there was a match, yay! And if there wasn't a match, well, it was, thank you, nice meeting you, do come again. And that's when my very cool, wise, and gentle spirit brother and teacher Yeshua showed up and looked me in the eye and he gave me a little smile. And he said, you're not alone. Everyone's here. And I felt it to be true. I felt the community, the intimacy, the openness. And then he said five words that struck me as so profound. I lean on them almost every day. He said with a solemn nod, Love yourself. Serve without ego. Love yourself. Serve without ego. What a beautiful statement. 
All those beings, unencumbered by the crazy confusion of humanness, were out there loving themselves. I knew this because they were unabashedly tending to their own growth, to the cultivation of their own gifts, to their own enlightenment. They didn't have an agenda to fix somebody else's wound. They were not preoccupied with the proverbial speck in the eye of their neighbor while having a board in their own. They were working on the tending of their own development, their own clarity, their own divine presence. And they were, at the same time, open to loving engagement with one another and with me. But they didn't feel a need to be something they weren't just to satisfy my needs. They didn't feel a need to sacrifice their own natures or development to help this wandering apprentice. They loved themselves, and they were willing to serve if what they had to offer was of use. And they were not offended if what they had did not match or was not wanted by any supplicant. They served without ego. They had no human ego to feel hurt by lack of interest or some judgment by another that they were not enough. In fact, there was no sense of not being enough at all. Quite the opposite. They were tending to it and loving themselves so completely that they were in fine form, the finest form possible, given the circumstances of their experience. And they knew it. And if what they had, if what they had to offer, wasn't something I wanted, they were okay with that. If who they were wasn't something that worked for me, they were fine with that too. It's not that they didn't care about my plight or my needs. It's rather that they understood that my issues were distinct from their issues and their gifts. And it wasn't up to them to fix me. Available to help, yes. Frustrated or demeaned or wounded by rejection? Not at all. For that would have implied self-judgment based on somebody else's perspective and somebody else's agenda. And they love themselves too much to take the bait. So, love yourself. That means invest in the cultivation of your own gifts. Give yourself the comfort and compassion and nurturing that you need. That means stretching yourself and trying things out in the world in ways that feel right and honorable to who you are and what gifts you've been graced to have. This process is what will make you the most attractive, useful, and fulfilled in the world. Period. Serve without ego? That means say yes to invitations to intimacy. Say yes to opportunity. But it means not taking it personally if you don't get the gig. It's about you only if you make it about you. Let your gifts be known and let your gifts be offered, but leave the idea of rejection buried out behind the barn. It's a notion that only serves to damage your love for yourself. I've come to understand that loving myself, cultivating and being fully unreservedly me, is a sacred and intimate act that lasts a lifetime. Recognizing this truth has come slowly, but it's increasingly clear and satisfying. Now, for the hard part. We'll be right back. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. 
And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back, everyone. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me in conversation today is Marguerite Riglioso. Uh, doctor and founding director of Seven Sisters Mystery School, which offers in-person and online courses and events dedicated to restoring the ancient way of the priestess and the authentic priest in service to today's world. She's a scholar practitioner of the ancient Mediterranean mystery traditions, a university faculty member, a spiritual teacher, channeler, and a mentor who helps women and men cultivate their spiritual knowledge and bring their sacred calling to fruition. Her work in the current year includes Priestess of the Dove training for women who want to become sacred oracles. Marguerite, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Great to be here. It's, it's, yeah, it's great to have you on again. Um, our, our last conversation a few years ago was about the cult of divine birth, and that conversation still it, uh, still impresses me with its power and it, and its consequential nature. So I, I hope you're continuing to do that work as well. Yes, I am. It's fascinating stuff. But today, I want to talk about something that's a little bit more conventional and current in that our environment is soaking in it. And your most recent newsletter brought that out, and I just thought we should we should really have a conversation about it. And you talked about fear and dread being... We're soaking in it, and what do we do? What do we do about it? Let's just let's just jump right in. What do we do about this condition, and how do we give us some guidelines on how to think about it and how to approach it? Yeah. So as I mentioned in what I wrote recently, put out in my blog for Seven Sisters Mystery School, um, I talked about something that I've been studying experientially and shamanically for about 17 years now through my expanded states work, which is um, an understanding of fear as a literal God on the astral plane. Uh, The indigenous ancient Greeks understood this, and this is reflected in the fact that they called him Phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S. And his brother, Dread, was called Deimos, D-E-I-M-O-S. And like most qualities, characteristics, attributes, um, the Greeks understood them, as, as does the esoteric perspective, as personified deities in the interdimensional plane. So these two gods are seen as male and the Greeks would work with these gods in different ways. They would image them and they would 
call to them and work with them in ceremonies. For example, there's a famous passage in one of the ancient writers that Alexander the Great spent when he was on one of his, you know, warrior campaigns <laughs> throughout the known world at the time in terms in Western terms. Um, he spent an entire night with his soothsayer, that is to say his shaman, propitiating fear, meaning making offerings to this God all night long. And the next day, they were able to win the battle. So when I have done my expanded state journeys, fear would be a frequent visitor. He would come in and just try to take me over and all these sorts of fears would come in and and so forth and so on. And eventually I realized, okay, this is a being. This is an entity. This is a consciousness that needs to be spoken to with respect and addressed through certain protocols. So as I began to understand that and work with fear and, you know, sort of when you're dealing with fear shamanically, you want the first thing you want to say is, I honor you. So that's when you're in either when you're in a ceremony and you start feeling afraid because that's how he'll come in. You'll feel afraid. He grips you. He possesses you. Whether you're in a ceremony or whether you're just in three-dimensional regular life and all of a sudden you're gripped by fear, big or small, the first thing you want to do is say, I honor you. And you recognize what's come into your system, what's come through your system is this God. And that begins the first point of separation. Because what fear will do is he'll come in and it will feel like it's you. And it actually is not you. So being able to start making the demarcation between you and then fear as a God or dread. And there are also nuances, you know. I was going to ask you if there's a uh, a way to describe the difference between fear and dread. Fear, dread, loathing, panic. These are all aspects in the milieu of these two gods. So fear, and then there's terror, you know. So they're all gradations. Now, fear is when you, uh, you, you have an experience and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in danger, you know, either psychologically, physically, or emotionally. Dread is more that feeling that you're in danger at your soul level or spiritually. So dread would be a feeling of, oh my God, I'm, I'm unredeemable or I've done something that's going to be unpardonable. So that's one domain of dread. Another domain of dread is, oh my gosh, I just got married. And I know this is the wrong thing. Yeah, so, so I was, dread okay. for me feels like um, chronic anxiety, chronic, chronic fear as opposed to situational fear. It can be chronic. It can also be a moment of recognition mm-hmm. or a premonition. And, and it could be that you're reading something accurately. It also could be that, that it's just an illusion. Mm. Uh, but it somehow it's coming in and it's gripping you in a different way. There's a more 
profound undercurrent of almost loss, nausea, and like, please let this pass over me. Mm. Please don't let this be. You know? Yeah. That's how I would distinguish, just off the top of my head, distinguish fear and dread. I think each person will develop a way themselves. But so these protocols for how to deal with these with these gods, you know, one is that you, you acknowledge them, you say, I honor you, I bow to you. And, you know, there are other things you can do, like ask them why they're here, ask them what their message is, because that's a whole piece of a conversation that I want to get into momentarily. But what I want to say first is that in starting to develop this understanding and honoring of fear as a god, in my ceremonies, one time I had the experience um, just prior to this that you know how people are feel the fear and do it anyway or eradicate fear from your life, you know, all this and that. So I was like going into ceremony going, I'm eradicating fear from my life. And I had the distinct impression of this consciousness coming to me and going, are you sure? Mm, yeah. I said, what do you mean? And he said, I'm your warning signal. Yeah. yeah. And that that really put the fear of God into me, so to speak. And I thought, okay, you know what? No, I'm not going to eradicate fear in my life. I'm going to come into right relationship with fear. Right. Thank you very much for making that distinguishing. And we're gonna that's a whole other conversation we're gonna have. But what I want to say is that right on the heels of that, what I received was information about what had happened that night with Alexander the Great and his soothsayer. Oh. Fear gave me a boon. And uh-huh. that's what will happen when you actually honor these negative gods. Now, this doesn't mean go serve them and you're going to do their bidding. It just means honor them for who they are and you're not trying to eradicate them, deny that they exist, and what have you. You're going to honor them. I honored him. And what he told me was that that night, Alexander and his soothsayer spent all night propitiating fear and coaxing him to go into the heart of the enemy, which he did because they treated him nicely. And that's how they won the battle the next day. They shot fear right into the heart of the battle and into the heart of the enemy. And they dissembled. And that's in their dissembling and weakening through their own fear, that's how Alexander's army was able to go whap. So so this is interesting. Uh, there's a there's several threads that that I'm I'm dying to dying to go after here. Um one is the utility of fear as not just as a warning I mean, I think most people get the idea that you know fear emerges in our in our space when we're when we feel threatened, and so that's that's sensible that we have that mechanism. Um, but I want to explore because you called you 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 called him a, a negative god, and I, I'm I don't actually quite have that perspective. I I want to explore fear. In contrast, the ways we approach fear, one as an addiction and the other as a teacher. 
Because I, I think what I've experienced in my life and I see happening around me is that people, because they don't have a good understanding of fear as a as something that can be that you can relate to, right? Whether you make it a god or an archetype or a psychological cognition in some sense, um, we're so clueless about how to relate to fear in a constructive way. And I, I kind of want to explore the constructive utilitarian elements of having a right, being in right relationship with fear. So rather than calling him a negative God, we might call him one of the difficult ones. Okay. I'm good with that. Challenging one. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes we might call him one of the dark ones, a dark Lord. He's Mm -hmm. a dark Lord. Okay. I tend to hesitate to use that word dark because there's so many, you know, connotations that are offensive to people, but whatever. So, yes, he's a teacher. He is eminently programmable into the human neural system. And that is how he gets used shamanically. It is also what happens when people get traumatized, when they experience sudden or prolonged traumas. This could be in childhood, this could be through war, this could be whatever. It winds into the neural programming, fear winds in, and then you're kind of stuck with this neural programming, which is what you might be calling addiction. Yes. It's not really so much that people get addicted to fear as they get imprinted. Yeah, they get habituated to they get experiencing habituated. it and sensing it and, and, in effect, conjuring it. Yeah. So it's a quite intricate and complicated process with many different layers and strands of what happens around fear. I'll talk with you about how to manage this from the practical and shamanic levels. But I also want to bring up an important point which I mentioned also in that blog post, which is that people who work in the occult, which include, apparently, some of the people in our highest levels and echelons of corporate, governmental, um, and military organizations, according to many world channelers, people who work in the occult know how to use and manipulate fear just like Alexander's soothsayer did. They know how to propitiate this God and shoot him into the hearts, minds, and neural streams of others. Because the human organism is so sensitive, it can be so easily sensationalized, programmed, and traumatized. Uh, The media... And other events, staged and otherwise, get used to instill fear and messaging get used to instill fear into people, which is why you were saying at the beginning of the call that we're swimming in it. Yes, it has been put into our society, injected time after time, yellow alert, red alert, orange alert in the airports. We're going to have this kind of event and that kind of event. 
and then all of the media media stuff that gets fed in about fear about you're going to lose your you're going to lose your financial wealth you're not going to get a job you're if you're a young person if you don't look a certain way as a woman or you get over a certain age you're not going to have love and you're going to die as a bad person um you know all type of fears this stuff is intriguing to me um because i think there's a you said something that was provocative that there are beings that get food when we suffer. Now, I, I know that there is a way of understanding this in the esoteric realms, right? That there are literally are beings that feed on the energy that it, that comes off of us as we suffer. But I, I, for and and for those of us who participate and and walk in those realms, it's it's worth understanding that. But I also want to poke around on who feeds on our suffering here in this reality. Because somebody is, somebody is, who's winning? My question is, who's winning? Who's, who's getting the benefit of this fear injection? And why, why do they want that? Sometimes all of us get the benefit from fear injections for those around us if if it means that they bend to our will or um, they are in distress and they give us energy through that distress. There was a book called um, The Celestine Prophecy, which talked about how people get energy from one another and that some people can you can unconsciously upset another person and they, they will Dream energy right back into you through that upset. So a lot of times it can happen unconsciously among us as regular pedestrian people walking around. So we get we get fed by one another's anxieties and fears can. in some ways. We can. That's why abusive parents and people, they get tons of energy from their kids who are suddenly on watch and alert to see is mommy going to go off is is daddy going to go off and then that's giving an energy stream right into the parents so a lot of times parents get energy from kids abusive bullies get energy from other other people in the neighborhood um uh uh nasty bosses get energy from their underlings uh, manipulative men and women get energy from their disabled or destabilized partners. You know, like there can be many different ways that we can we can benefit. Okay, so this this is unconsciously going on all the time. It's mostly unconscious. Some people are aware and they just use it. I think when you start getting into the upper echelons of control organizations. My understanding from what I've been given and what I've heard from other channelers and from what I've witnessed from certain people in my life is that these people who work at these higher levels orchestrating world events and things like that, they are working with occult forces. But what's what's the upside for the occult forces? I don't get it. The, the occult forces get 
whatever kind of mana or energy from human misery. It just streams right up into them. Okay, so so this so this this is something that I'm trying to I'm trying to place in in some kind of context that fits my cosmic. These are called feeder feeder entities. Tom Kenyon talks about this in his book, The Arcturian Anthology, for example, that there are feeder entities that go through the cosmos looking for places where they can just suck off of any kind of uh, distress. And because humans are famous for having a very high range of emotions, uh, humans are, are have a lot of these suckers you know, all around and in, in our interdimensions. Okay. So I'm trying to go another level up from this. And as I contemplate this and ask myself, where is the love in this? Well, the love is in your own heart and the love is in my own heart. And we can flip this around because we live in a hologram and the microcosm is the same as the macrocosm. If you start healing the fear and the trauma and the lack of love in your own heart, then you you start affecting the whole system. Okay. Right. So, so in a sense, these feeders, uh, these they'll go bye bye. Either they'll go bye bye, or they will go to the light. Yeah, I was going to say there's there's there seems to be enough of them around that they have they're an emergent property of of our universe, right? They they they're going to be there. Uh, the question is, what do we do uh, about them, to in and how do we respond to them in a in a compassionate manner that exactly. doesn't that doesn't debilitate us? Exactly, because it's all about awareness is the first step. Right. Okay. And we are in complete power. We have sovereignty over our beings. We can say no to any types of entities that would manipulate fear into our hearts by certain factors like declaring our sovereignty. There's a statement that I have people do that will dispel things pretty quickly, and then you can see and sort out what's actually going on. Um, So we do have the power to get rid of this. We are not at the mercy of this. 24-7. 24-7. The way we get at the mercy is when we don't realize what is actually going on interdimensionally every single minute of our lives and we think that it's other things and we're not aware that, holy cow, I'm being manipulated. Well, I can unmanipulate myself right now. Yeah, I think that's so, the awareness thing is, is really key because it's the sovereignty of the self only is only at our command when we choose to be as big as or bigger than the things that are that are 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 impacting us. Say. Absolutely, we're totally equal, and that's the thing that that that's been obscured to us. These types of beings have been able to pull the wool over our eyes, make us go unconscious, make us think that the three dimensions are all there is make us lose our connection to interdimensional realities, make us lose our connection to our starry origin histories, etc. And we've been walking around like programmed zombies for several hundred, if not thousand years. And that's what's stopping now. People are awakening. 
Right. So what is the characteristic of awakening to the dynamic, I'll, I'll call it the dynamic of fear? What, what, is, what does it look like when you wake up to the dynamic of fear? So, again, you first of all recognize that you are not fear. Fear is a separate being from you that can invade your system at any time. But if you start trucking with him in a different way, you can come into accord with him. So one thing might be to just simply say, I recognize you, fear, I honor you. Another thing I teach people is to make an altar, a secret hidden altar to fear and, and dread. And any shadow elements, for that matter, any dark lords or ladies. Because there's a lot of beings that could be on there like jealousy like, right. you know, warfare, strife, all sorts of things can go on that shadow altar. I invite people to create a shadow altar, have it hidden, and maybe have what uh, what are images of the one or two that are the main ones that you're working with in this lifetime or right now. You know, what, what what's really up for you? Is it strife? Is it fear? Is it jealousy? Is it... um Grief is it? What is it? You know. And what do we? Um, how do we honor them in a way that? Because we're not supplicating to them. We're not no. subordinating you're to them. Saying, you're just saying, "I honor you." I light this candle in honor of who you are and what you carry. I acknowledge the burden that you carry by carrying what you do, and I ask to be in right relationship with you. I ask you to be my ally. Do you have a sense for what being in right relationship with fear as an ally is like? Well, for example, the, that, that expanded state ceremony that I told you about, as soon as I stopped trying to eradicate his existence, not only from my life, but from the planet, and I was like, holy cow, okay, I do need to be in accord with you, and I said, I honor you. It flipped the situation and he gave me a boon. He gave me information about what had happened with Alexander the Great. Okay. And other information has come to me about what's going on in environments around me, what people are really doing, thinking, saying, um, you know, that type of thing. So that's one, just one dramatic example of how it flipped right then. I think in general, in the everyday pedestrian life, Coming into relationship with fear means honoring him, giving him that food. Your honor is your is the food. Your see, honor. See, this is interesting, right? Instead of instead of fear, instead of the 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 state of fear in the self being the thing that feeds the energetic vampires, say, uh, there's another way to balance their um their needs maybe uh their their polarity their gravity what they want what what they try to um impress into the human experience there's another way to satisfy that absolutely through altars through inner acknowledgement you know through lighting a candle through making offerings that's why you know that you you have people making offerings of all different sorts to the gods 
one can only imagine what Alexander Soothsayer was offering. I'm sure it was animal in nature. Not that we're going to get into that, but it's like, can you just give your honoring to this God? And then they're like, oh, I've been seen, I've been recognized. So then they don't have to possess you to get, fear doesn't have to possess you to get its food. See, I think this is a really, really key point. And, and it holds whether you're talking about this esoterically or ex- exoterically. The, the taking the time to calmly and thoughtfully address yourself to the challenge, to the challenge, the challenger God or the challenging archetype or the challenging emotion. Absolutely. Frees you from what I think of as the addictive part. The possession. The possession, right? Because it, it, in a sense, as you, as you said, I mean, I think this is really powerfully simple. In acknowledging it, you can separate it from the self. Absolutely. And then you can examine it and you can do whatever work you need to do to understand how it can be valuable. And so when you talk about the story of Alexander and his soothsayer, it strikes me that what they did all night was sit with this power that is fear. Absolutely. And place themselves in a kind of communion with the nature of that power. Absolutely. So that when they engaged their their putative enemy, they understood how to inflect and inject because they became intimate with it. They understood it. Absolutely, because they were probably dealing with their own fear that night too, and they had to sit and grapple. Yeah, this like what I, what makes me afraid? What like like giving giving myself honoring myself to sit with what makes me afraid? Not that I am not that I have fear, but what is catalyzing this experience in me? Absolutely, illuminates a lot of aspects of the psyche that are useful. It does, and we're. You know, we're talking, we're emphasizing the esoteric aspect of this, but psychologists, you know, and and people doing inner child work can look at it on the psychological level as well. It's the same phenomenon that you described so beautifully, that in just simply acknowledging the fear, my fear, what makes me fearful, it does create that separation suddenly. And then you can interact with that energy in a whole different way and it doesn't have to possess you 24 7 in traumatized behavior so i have a question about using fear the way alexander used it see that's unethical i was just going to say do you feel like there's uh a some some signposts for the ethical interaction with fear as a power. Yes, there certainly are. Namely, do not ever do anything that deliberately causes fear in another person. (laughs) And the thing is that we have so much going on in our society 
fear rays are coming toward us all the time, and the media is the main thing. So I would say if you want to first start detaching from fear, turn off your media. Do not listen to the news, the so-called news. <laughs> right, right. It's not very, it's not no, very informative. Do not look at these popular magazines. Do not get in with all these thought forms that are being directed to us. To get to states of fear. How do we transmute them? Like, you know, we're all out in the world at some level. We're, we're interacting with the uh, dominant culture, which has its reasons for cultivating fear. And there are actually reasons to be afraid. There are, exactly. you know, there are things out there that, that we should be, our warning system should be triggering us about. Exactly. And in fact, the guides told me that any given situation, only at most 50% is reality. So any given situation that is causing a tremendous amount of fear, only about 50% is reality. In fact, sometimes that could be 0% is reality. It can, it can, so the illusory nature of things that cause fear can, can be anywhere between, um, you know, zero and a hundred. <laughs> okay. So in other words, all right, we're worried about global warming. So what if we just take the 50-50 view that anything we're hearing is only 50% reality? What you want to do is you want to take off the 50% that's panic. And that's another God. We thank you very much. We honor you. But we are asking to that you go here now. And just look at the reality that we have to deal with is which, which and so once we get out of the trauma response, then we can breathe and go, oh, OK, I need to not use so much gas. I need to live in a group house to conserve. I need to take my recycling. Um, I need to, you know, use a different kind of laundry soap, if at all. Or, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. and then on the global level, it's. The, the the administrators can can look at things in a more calm way as well. So you want to you want to start realizing that a percentage of anything you hear about or see about be it in your personal life or in the big screen of global events is at least 50% illusion if not more. Yeah, I, I, do you think that that percentage has uh, steadily increased with our ability to project our will onto the environment in which we live, onto our experience. Yeah. I mean, back in the paleo days, was was it 50% illusion? Well, see, the thing is, back in the paleo days, they were still living in a shamanic reality. Yeah. You know, it's not like they were cavemen who were idiots. They were, hello, I, in a way, I'd rather be back there, you know. But, again, that's another whole belief system and, and history that we've been given about early man. Right, right. You know? uh, it always, it always, it, <laughs> I remember when I, when I first started to reread the Judeo-Christian Bible from Genesis, and I really haven't gotten further than Genesis, right, because that's all I needed, but, but I realized in that creation story, there was a way to read it that was profoundly wise that led me to to 
to think, you know, these people were not old folks, old-fashioned folks who were dumb. They were really profoundly aware, and we just think they were dumb because they didn't have technology. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot going on in biblical days, and and some of it was their own version of programming. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and 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 still being in cahoots with larger cosmic deity forces and allying with them. Yeah, well, that happens. And then calling it monotheism, and then just saying this is the only god. Well, hello, let me have your universe swallow my universe. You know, no thanks. So these are the types of shen- <laughs> these are the types of shamanic shenanigans that have been going on, and they're just new layers and forms of programming. And programming fear. Now, the major pre- fear program that could put into women very effectively was pain in childbirth. Okay? Yeah, yeah. The gods have shown me in ceremony that literally was a program that got put into the human consciousness. It literally was a program that took hold, took root, and went through the whole entire human race. However, they said, shamanically, Collectively, if women got wise, they could release that program, but it would take unity consciousness in all women because actually, originally, women gave birth in orgasmic ecstasy. Yeah, and then there's actually um, a, a resurgence of investigating that, a movement about ecstatic birth. Yeah, water birth, ecstatic birth, all those sorts of things. At least those women are starting to wake up to get the program out of them because it's something that's like in the neocortex that goes all the way down into the whole nerve body. It's fascinating. Uh, it is. It is literally like a, uh, you know, a, a thing that's um, connected to the whole system. It's a being. So you know, these are the types of things that go on. So in terms of releasing fear, fear um, dissolves or moves. To its quadrant when you start generating love. Okay? So what I've been shown is that should you be in any kind of environment, let's say a group environment, where everyone is suddenly freaking out, if one person in the room stands up during a fracas where everyone's freaking out and talking about all this and getting into the whole fear, whipping up the fear, They said, if one person stands up and says, I recognize that fear is in the room, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start generating from my heart the love energy, the love emotion and the love energy. I'm going to be sitting over here. If anyone wants to join me in that energy, please do. They said it can transform the room. Now, where do we place this love energy? Now, when 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 I ask that question, I'm thinking about imagine being outnumbered. Right. In a group situation. Well, you start placing it with yourself. Okay, good. And that's what the guides are saying is a number one. This whole next generation of spirit work is all about self-love. Yeah. So what you have to do is you have to start sitting there becoming compassionate with your fearful inner child who's totally freaking at what's going on. Just be compassionate and just loving toward yourself, loving toward yourself and just feeling that emotion of love. Then as you get that going in your system, and sometimes 
you can get that going by thinking of something you love unconditionally, like a dog or a place or a child or an elder or whatever. Whatever you need to do to get the feeling starting to generate in your heart, like this is the technology of it. You get the feeling generated. You start bringing it to yourself. I'm, I'm feeling afraid. I'm loving myself in this fear. Comforting myself in this fear. And I'm breathing and I'm comforting. And then you start being able to say, and I love that person over there who's gesticulating and is feeling terribly afraid. And even though they're being obnoxious, I realize that what's underneath there is their own seven-year-old who's afraid or three-year-old. You send it out to the whole entire group. And then from there, you start saying, wow, I really love everyone in this building. And I love... I'm sending this love to everyone in this neighborhood and I'm sending it out and I'm sending it all around to the planet and I'm sending it all to the solar system and the galaxy. You know, you can, that is a powerful technology if you want to use that term. It shifts the energy. It shifts the vibration in the room. Others will start calming down. Fear will start detaching. Hmm. There's so much more I want to talk about here, but one of the things that you mentioned was codes of feminine compassion in the presence of fear. And is that what you were just describing? Yes, because I think that it is part of the feminine role right now to bring the love energy in. The goddess love is always has always been associated with the feminine goddess. It is one of the feminine entities. So therefore, we're bringing in that feminine energy into a world that has gone way too into fear, way too into control, way too into yang energy, and we're bringing that feminine in. So yes, it is all about integrating the feminine love being, the feminine love energy, the compassion energies into ourselves, ourselves, our bodies, our world. Yeah, I think this is really subtle but important for people to understand that there's a if you if you take the divine masculine divine feminine active principle receptive principle notion for a minute as the ontology to splice the universe right just just take it for a minute and say there's the divine masculine there's the divine feminine there's the active principle and the receptive principle and in the presence of fear one of the things that we don't remember to bring is the receptive principle. Because we have a programmed in our biology the fight or flight response in the presence of fear. That's a very active thing to do. That's an active principle response. How do you bring a receptive principle of response into a room into a community, into a society, into a battleground of fear and conflict. Well, it involves taking risk because you have to be willing to be present to that conflict. And we don't want to do that. We want to run from that or we want to eradicate it. We want to shut it down. And the receptive principle doesn't do that. The receptive principle honors and allows and is shaped by. Now, that's not to say that that's the only thing we would want to do, right? Because you don't want to be allow yourself to be shaped by 
fear or by savagery or by hatred and anger, but you do want to be present to it so that it can be separate from yourself. Absolutely. That is the paradox of it. And it begins with not worrying even so much about the conflict and hatred in the world and violence, but the conflict and hatred and violence in your own heart and how you talk to yourself. It's so, it is so absolutely grounded in the self. The first, the first chess piece to move is the move into your own heart. Into your own heart. And you can change the world through that. You can change the cosmos through that. And each person who is coming into a wholeness and an integration of yin and yang, receptivity and action, love and movement. And will. Yeah. Will is is effecting change in the whole hologram and all of the grids around the planet and into the cosmos. And the interdimensional beings are watching us and they learn from us around this and they get something from us when we do that. They, too, are able to change. So it's not just the gods inflicting their will on us and telling us what to do and going about, but it's us coming into our realization that through these simple actions, we step into our divine selves. Then we become co-equal with the gods and we affect change all throughout the hologram. That This is the remarkable alchemical process that we're all in for those who really want to look at it with fifth dimensional eyes. So something just came to me, which I think is really kind of cute and maybe easily memorable. You are what you eat. So if we choose to feed the gods a different diet, they will change. Exactly. Because they are also what they eat. And if they're receiving energy from us, if we send them a different kind of energy, they're going to be different. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's kind of fun. So remember that. You are what you eat. <laughs> Great point. You are what you eat, and you want to be a, a, a pure offering to the gods. Yeah, there you go. Excellent. All right. Okay, Marguerite, we're just about out of time. Is there any last thoughts you want to share about fear as a god uh, and how to honor and whatnot? I would say recognize him as a god. Start speaking to him in that way. Light a candle to him. Ask him to be an ally and a teacher. And create that altar. And start using the love energy to release yourself of unneeded possession by this God who is only looking for his food. Excellent advice. And if folks want to get to know you and your work a little bit better, how do we direct them? Go to sevensistersmysteryschool.com, and the seven is spelled out, S-E-V-E-N, sevensistersmysteryschool.com, and I have many free offerings there. And you can also contact me at info at sevensistersmysteryschool.com. I work with people privately. I have introductory sessions for me to get to know you and what your spiritual or sacred career needs are, so I do you know, private clairvoyant work with people. And I have courses that are online. I'm going to be teaching the Priestess of the Dove training to help women become the oracle sacred women that we have always been and need to be for this planet to bring through that that divine intelligence integrated with, with our own wisdom 
back onto the planet again so people can contact me. And I, I encourage folks to do that. The work that Marguerite is doing is very esoteric in many ways. It is profoundly deep and it's scholarly as well. So, you know, if, if you find this intriguing, I think Marguerite is a good place for you to spend some time and get to know her. So, Marguerite, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, John, for having me again and blessings for all you're doing on this planet. And we'll be right back. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi C at tarotbyhic.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Next month, I'll be transitioning the show to a new format and a long-promised new website. So the show's segments will be easier to find. We'll also have some new recurring guests that I'm excited to share with you over the coming year. Meanwhile, enjoy the waning tide of winter and the hints of spring. Let fear be a teacher and love, especially self-love, be your goal. Your ego Eventually, we'll thank you. And thanks for joining us. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.